Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. I love that song that we just heard. It's so clever. It captures in such a good way an experience that I think many of us have had. The experience of hiding. The experience of lying to yourself and to other people about how you're really doing. The experience of being alone and isolated with the real you, with the guilt and the shame that comes with it. Heard recently someone say, you know, when you come to Jesus, you do it because you realize that you're a sinner, and then you spend the next 40 years trying to convince everybody that's not actually true. You ever felt that way? What if I told you it didn't have to be that way? What if I told you you didn't have to be alone with your sin and your regret and your shame? What if I told you there was a better way? The passage we're gonna be looking at today is in 1 John. It's a New Testament book towards the end of the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. 1 John chapter one. This entire summer, we have been talking about spiritual rhythms, the things that we do over and over again that shape who we become. And we have been searching for habits that will help us be shaped by God's grace rather than the pressures of the world. And the rhythm we're talking about today is the rhythm that helps us experience God's grace in the area of our guilt and our shame and our regret. It's the rhythm, the habit of confession. Let's start reading in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How how do we deal with our guilt and shame? Let's start by talking about what we aren't supposed to do. Let's talk about how we hide our guilt and shame, how you hide your guilt and shame. Uh, The passage opens up with kind of a problem here. You might not have realized it was a problem at first, but it turns out it's actually a really big problem, and the problem is God. Look at this, verse five says, God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. Now that might not sound like a problem, but it might even sound inspiring at first, and it is, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. It's so different from the gods that people in John's day used to worship, the gods of the ancient world. I just finished up reading a collection of Greek myths, and the stories of these gods. I gotta tell you, these guys are cosmic level jerks. Just awful, you know, petty and selfish and violent. They're like every high school bully was given superpowers. It's terrible. If you like the idea of a God who is morally perfect, then you gotta thank the Bible for that because it's the first place the idea ever shows up. God is light. This is good news. This is a God that we can respect, not just because he's powerful, but because he's good. God is light. And that's great until we have to step into the light. 
You ever been in a dark room and you're kind of fumbling around, you're bumping into things, you're stepping on, stepping on Hogwarts label, Legos, just hypothetically speaking, you know? And you're like, oh gosh, I just wish I could see a little bit more. But then someone actually comes in the room and turns on all the light and they're like, oh, why did you do that? It's so bright. It, it, it turns out that we're much more used to the dark than we think. And when the lights go on, it's blinding. It, it's not just the intensity of the light that's the problem, it's what the light actually shows. Because in the light of God's goodness, our sin becomes impossible to hide. Our kitchen counters at home are kind of speckled, okay? They're kind of blue, and they've got some uh, white spots and brown spots and so on. And I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, because it's really hard to see when there's a mess on the counter. So there's a little section of the, the counter where I make my breakfast. So I pour my cereal, I make myself a cup of tea every single morning. And a while back, Michelle said to me, she said, hey, after you make your breakfast, could you just like wipe that section of the counter, you know, because you kind of make a mess sometimes. So I'm like, I'll make a mess. There's no mess here. Look at this. There's no mess here. Like, I'm not a toddler. I can pour some, you know, sugar and some cereal and some milk. I can do this. Look, I'll show you. And I take a towel and I wipe the edge of the counter and I'm like, look, and it's filthy. It's as if Animal from the Muppets was making my breakfast. Like, da, 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 you know, it's everywhere. It's like a cup of sugar and just crushed Cheerios and just this disgusting. I'm like, well, it must have been on the towel before I, I wiped it, right? <laughs> and the mess had always been there, but I just couldn't see it. It just blended into the background. This is what our sin is like. We are used to comparing ourselves to the, the behavior of other people. And so in the background of all of our mess, it doesn't look that bad. But when in contrast with God's goodness and his light, we see that it's really, really not good. When this happens, our natural instinct is to hide. There's an interesting detail in the story of the Garden of Eden. If you've ever read that story at the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they first sin, most of the time when we kind of imagine this in our head, we think, oh, God shows up and he gets mad and kicks them out. But that's not actually the order of how things work. When God first shows up after Adam and Eve sin, he actually calls out to them. He says, Adam, where are you? He's looking for them. He wants to be near them. Where are the people? Where are Adam and Eve? They're off hiding, right? They're, they're somewhere else. They're, they're, they're not trying to avoid being with God. We, we think God shows up just to kick them out, but God shows up to draw them in. And what's our natural instinct? It's to hide, to slink away, to not be seen. We pull back into the shadows and cover up. We withdraw. We don't want the truth of our lives to be seen by God, by others, or even ourselves. I think in society, there are kind of two main ways that we try to deal with our guilt and shame. Uh, the first one is what you might call self-improvement. Self-improvement. This takes a lot of different forms, but the basic idea is it's when someone uh, tries to overcome their failings through their own effort. So you go to therapy and you read a self-help book. You, you, you focus in on your character flaws and work on them, and you try to make amends for the things you've done wrong when you've hurt other people. And if you're religious, you do all the things. You go to the church services and you go to all the groups and you do all the spiritual disciplines because your pastor gave you like 10 more this summer and you're like, I'm putting them all on the list. Self-improvement. And all of these things are good things. You've heard us talk about these things again and again from this stage. These are good things to do. The problem is when you use these things as a way to cover up or combat your guilt and shame. That's not what they were meant to do. These things can't take back your past failures. They can't improve your character so much that you will never mess up again. 
And they definitely cannot earn you points to sort of offset your sin from before. But what they can do is if you use them to try to cover up your guilt and shame, they will make you judgmental and hypocritical. They'll make you judgmental because when you, you feel like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. You look at the other people around you, like, why can't they get their act together? They make you hypocritical because as you're doing a little bit better, so it seems, there's still areas of your life you know are not up to snuff. So you hide those and you pretend like they're not there. You put the good things forward and you hide all of that stuff in the background. You pretend like you're okay. But this is what verse six says about that. It says, if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live out the truth. So sometimes we try to hide our guilt and shame with self-improvement. But sometimes we try to hide our guilt and shame through self-affirmation, self-affirmation. This is when we look at something in our life that makes us feel bad. We feel guilty or ashamed of it. And we say, you know what? What if it really isn't that bad? Maybe this isn't something to feel bad about. Maybe this is something to affirm, to celebrate. It's our Elsa moment, you know? We we feel like, I don't want to have to contain myself. So we just let it go, you know? You just be yourself. I'm tired of trying to change. I'm going to be who I am. Now, sometimes this is exactly what we need to do. There's a whole lot of things that are not sinful, and we still feel ashamed about them. But we don't need to feel ashamed about those things. Uh, People feel ashamed because of how they look or because of their personality. They're an introvert or their their sense of humor or, or because of their cultural background. They feel ashamed of these things. And those are not things that we ought to uh, hide and feel feel ashamed of. They're things that we should affirm and embrace about ourselves. There's a lot of false shame out there. The problem is when self-affirmation is used as an excuse for sin. It's used as a way way to hide. You ever hear, hear someone use the phrase, well, that's just the way I am. Well, yes, sometimes I lose my temper, but that's just the way I am, right? Uh, yeah, I know they were offended, but, you know, I, sometimes I don't have such a great filter. That's just the way I am. Or they'll say, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. No, you're just being a bully. You're just being a gossip. Uh, sometimes it takes the form of appealing to their own happiness. You know, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be fulfilled, and so he's okay with me doing this. You use that as an excuse to do things that you know the Bible tells you are wrong, and you call them good instead. And what can happen is we can end up like Wreck-It Ralph. You ever watch the the movie Wreck-It Ralph? Wreck-It Ralph is a a villain in a video game. He's the bad guy. But he's discontent. He doesn't want to be the bad guy, and so he actually goes to a support group for other video game villains. So he's sitting there with, like, Bowser from Mario and a ghost from Pac-Man and a bunch of other bad guys, and they're talking about this, and they're trying to get Ralph to just accept the fact that this is who he is. He's a villain, and that's okay. And so they actually recite the, 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 uh, the motto of the support group. I'm bad, and that's good. I'll never be good, and that's not bad. There's no... <laughs> There's no one I'd rather be than me. It's self-affirmation, self-affirmation. This is what it can become, self-deception. When we call what is evil, good. Verse eight says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Both self-affirmation and self-improvement can be ways to hide your guilt and shame. What we need to do is learn to face our guilt and shame. The Bible often compares our sin to filthy rags, uses the image of being invited into a banquet, a feast from this king. The king invites you in, and so you go and you put on the very best clothes that you have, and you look down and you realize they're stained and tattered and smelly. If I walk into the bright light of that banquet, I'm going to be so ashamed. I cannot go there looking like this. 
And so when you go to the Bible and say, well, what's the solution? What, what am I supposed to do about this? You expect to see something like, well, work harder. Do, do better. You know, scrub, scrub those clothes clean. Go, go wash them up. Or buy some new or nicer stuff. And then you can join the party. It's self-improvement. Or, or we expect it to say, well, okay, well, believe in yourself. Have a little bit more confidence. Accept the way you're dressed, you know? Walk into that party with your head held high, no matter what anybody else thinks or what you feel. Self-affirmation. But what the Bible actually says is this. Why don't you let the king provide you some new clothes? But doing that means stepping into the light and letting your old clothes be seen. This is what verse nine says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you wanna deal with your guilt and shame, the key is not self-improvement or self-affirmation, it's self-honesty, self-honesty. It means admitting to God and to others, I'm not okay. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is what I'm really like, this is who I really am, what I've really done. Uh, when a newspaper makes a mistake in a story, they'll uh, often update the, the story online with a correction, or if it's a print edition, they'll actually print the next day a, a correction for it. Uh, and there was a while back, a California newspaper that had to make this correction. It said, correction, a headline on an item in the February 5th edition of the Inquirer Bulletin incorrectly stated, stolen groceries. It should have read, homicide. <laughs> this is what a lot of us do with our sin. We downplay, we hide, we refuse to acknowledge how bad it really is. We need to learn how to say, I'm not just under some stress right now, I'm an angry person. I'm not just ambitious, I'm a workaholic. I didn't just like some wine at night to relax, I have a drinking problem. I'm not just comfortable sharing my opinions, I'm impatient and judgmental. I'm not just being frugal, I'm stingy. I don't just like nice things, I'm greedy and materialistic. I don't just slip up once in a while, I'm addicted to porn. I'm not just being a supportive colleague, I'm having an emotional affair. I'm not just processing my emotions, I am bitter and unforgiving. We've gotta call it like it is. It's not stolen groceries, it's homicide. But what do you do then? You've looked at it squarely and said, this is not right. But where does that leave you? It's just despair. I'm, I'm, I'm screwed up. What do I do now? What do I do? And this is where the Bible says something completely unexpected and completely revolutionary. How do you deal with your guilt and shame? What do you do? In a sense, you don't, you don't do anything. Instead, you let someone else do something. You let Jesus take it. Verse seven says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, not our works, not our effort, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Here, here's the key. God doesn't say, oh, your sin, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. He says, yes, it's actually a huge deal. It's a big enough deal that I'm going to have to handle it for you. And then God does the opposite of what we do. Our instinct, when we see our guilt and shame, is to run away from God. But God's instinct is to run towards us. In Jesus, God gets as close to us as he possibly can. He becomes one of us. And he says, I'm going to make your problem my problem. You, you made this mess yourself, but I'm going to clean it up. 
This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's why he went there. He was dying the death that we deserve for our sins. Jesus didn't downplay our guilt and shame. He didn't make excuses. He took the full weight of it on himself so that he could take it off of our shoulders. But when we face our guilt and shame, when we see it, we are convinced that God is going to reject us. I mean, how could he not? Like, how could anybody see what I'm really like? No, the real me, the the honest truth about me, how could they see that and still love me, still want to be with me? This is why we hide. It's a survival instinct. We, we, we assume if we let people see the truth, if anybody can you know, see what's really going on, they won't want to be around me. They'll despise me. And so we keep it hidden because then maybe we'll receive a little bit of love. But as soon as we're known, that love is gone. But I want you to hear this. This is the good news. Because Jesus died on the cross, we know this is true. In Christ, we are fully known and fully loved fully known and fully loved. God knows everything about us. The, the, the most hidden, worst things about us, the things that we don't let anybody see. And not only does he not reject us, he actively pursues us. He, he doesn't just stand there and say, hey, why don't you come out of that sin and shame? He actually enters into our sin and shame. He takes it on himself to find us. He goes in to rescue us. The only way we can have the courage to face our sin and shame honestly it's because in, in Christ, we are fully known and fully loved. We already know that he knows, and we know he won't reject us, and so we can be honest about ourselves and with others. That's good news. That's really good news. But we need to take one more step. Because one thing to know that Jesus did this for you, and this is what he thinks about you, is one thing to know that. It's another thing to experience it, to let it get worked down deep into our hearts. But we can know what Jesus did and still carry that weight of guilt and shame on our shoulders. So we need to talk about how to drop your guilt and shame, how to drop your guilt and shame. This is where the practice of confession comes in. This is the reason confession is so important because it is the tangible way we experience being fully known and fully loved. It's not just an idea, it's an experience. There are three major forms of confession. The first is the simplest, most fundamental. It's probably the one you are most likely to have done. It is confession in prayer, confession in prayer. Uh, You simply talk to God. When you're praying, you say, God, here I am. Here's what I've done. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And you're honest. You you don't sugarcoat things. You don't make excuses. You just say, you know already, God, I'm just going to be honest with you. And hopefully, if you're a Christ follower, this is something you do every day, you know, because we sin every day. And so we need to apologize every day. I know that throughout my day, you know, a dozen times a day, the Holy Spirit's going to ping me and I'm going to realize, oh man, I was really selfish in that interaction. Oh man, I, you know, I, I was so rude to that person. Ah, I shouldn't have laughed at that joke. And these little moments of conviction, you just stop and you pause and in the moment, I'll just confess my sin. God, I'm so sorry for that. But it's not just in the moment. It's not, not just ad hoc. It's also, you set aside some time when you sit down to pray during the day, You make confession a part of that time. So we often use the acronym around here, CHAT, C-H-A-T. Confess, honor, ask, thank. It's what we do when we sit down to pray. And so confession should be a regular rhythm each day of apologizing for what you've done to God. So that's the first and simplest kind of confession, confession in prayer. The second kind is confession in public, confession in public. And by this, I mean the sort of confession that we do when we get together in gatherings like this for public worship. 
around here at Christ Community, at least once a month, usually more often, we have a distinct moment in our services where we are prompted to confess our sin. Uh, sometimes we provide a moment of silence to do that. Sometimes we sing a song that expresses that. Uh, sometimes we pray a written prayer together like that. And this is so important for us to do, to confess our sin in a community for, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a just good practice for the rest of our lives. Like we know that we should be confessing our sin regularly to God each day, but often we, we don't do that. And so to be prompted regularly, hey, this is important. Uh, first, we need to do it today, but also it's more likely if we do it today that we'll do it throughout the rest of the week. So it's good practice. Uh, confession in community is also important because it gives us models, examples of how to confess well. So when I was young, I had some G.I. Joes. So a little kid, I had a bunch of G.I. Joes. And for some reason, that has never been explained to me, I was not allowed to have Cobra. So I couldn't have the bad guys. I had all the good guys, but none of the bad guys. So I didn't have anybody to fight. So was, I, I don't know if it was supposed to be some sort of like UN peacekeeping force or something like that. Like, I don't, I don't know. So if you've got G.I. Joes, but no Cobra, who does G.I. Joe fight? Barbie. Regularly, I would go into my sister's room with my G.I. Joes, and we would invade the Barbie dream house, and we would have an epic battle. And at the end, when fashion accessories and unrealistic body parts are strewn across the battlefield, my sister would come in, and for some reason, she'd be upset about this. And eventually, my mom would hear the, the, the noise, and she would come in and try to settle things down. And at some point, she would say this. She would say, Clayton, say, Marta, I'm sorry for messing up your toys. I'd say... Marta, I'm sorry for messing up your toys. And she'd say, Marta, what do you have to say to your brother? I forgive you. Now, here's the thing about that interaction. Was that apology always heartfelt every time I said it? <laughs> no, of course not, right? But my mom still thought this was a valuable thing to do with her kids. And most parents do this. We have some way of helping our kids learn how to say sorry to other people. Why do we do that? Because otherwise, we would never learn how to resolve conflict. Kids don't have scripts for how to apologize because on their own, they don't know what to say or how to say it or what to do. They did, you know, if you just leave it, it sort of just, you know, the anger just sort of goes someplace else. You've got to teach people how to resolve these things. The, the truth is, this is true for most of us. Most of us don't know how to say sorry well, even to God. And so we need examples. We need scripts that help us learn the kinds of things we're supposed to say. And so at Christ Community, we regularly use written confessions in our service. And for some of you, these are really powerful moments. I, very regularly, I have people come to me and say, hey, can I get a copy of that prayer that was really helpful? I, I really liked that. Very powerful moment in the service. But for others of you, not so much. Like, I, I sometimes have a hard time connecting with those prayers. Here's what I would offer. They don't always have to be powerful moments in the service, but they can always be powerful models for what to say to God at other times. Another reason we confess in public is because there are certain sins that are group sins. That throughout the Bible, we see God's people confessing not just the sins of individuals, but as a group, confessing the sins of the whole community. Uh, Moses intercedes for the whole people. Ezra and Nehemiah, they lead the, the entire nation in confessing the sins of, of their nation. Daniel confesses the, the sins of his ancestors that are still affecting the people today. And so there are times when we need to confess not just my sins, but our sins. And we do that in public gatherings. Uh, this is also one of the reasons we include songs of confession. And in fact, this is so important for us as a church. Uh, our worship team has actually written some of the songs of confession that we use because we want them to say things we really need to say. 
So the other day, I actually sat down with one of our worship pastors to talk about a song of confession that we wrote together, and I want you to see this conversation. So check it out. You see me, you know me, you know who I am. years ago, our worship pastors got together to write some songs, and one of those songs was called You Know Who I Am, and PD, you took the lead on writing that song, so why don't you tell us about how it came about? Yeah, so every year our creative arts team gets together, and we want to write songs for our local church. So one of the songs that we came up with was the song You Know Who I Am, which is about confession. We wanted to be able to voice uh, and give, give the way for a church to confess in a worship service through song. Song starts in kind of a heavy place. It's pretty intense at the beginning. And so why did you take that approach of these opening verses being just so heavy? Yeah, so the chorus we came up with together and we were missing a lot of verses. So one day I sat down and I really wanted to be able to write something that was honest, raw, but true. And what I came up with, with with the verses are really just the feelings that I have when it comes to my sin, when it comes to confessing that, the weight of it, the heaviness of it, feelings of being alone, shame. Uh, you're in a dark place. I wanted to be able to say that and, and give the permission for the people in our church to also say that. So the first couple of verses are pretty dark and it turns to the chorus, which is you see me, you know me, you know who I am. And when you sing that after those verses, you're singing that in light of the state of your sin. And it actually sounds like really bad news. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of startling in some ways. You expect the chorus to give you something and it's like, oh, that's heavy. But right after that first time you sing the chorus is this incredible moment where it talks about lifting up your eyes and seeing Jesus. And it's almost like the moment of truth. Like, how's he gonna react? What's the look on his face going to be? Tell me about that verse. Right, so you're, initially you're singing from this dark place. You're alone, you're afraid, you're ashamed. And your head is down. And you look up and you see Jesus standing there. What is he gonna do? You might expect a punishment, judgment, but what Jesus actually does is he brings you close and he washes you clean. And you might not have expected that at all. And so there's this amazing feeling of love and redemption that you have because of what Jesus has done for you. So when you sing the chorus again after that, it says, you see me, you know who I am. You're singing from a place of victory. You're singing from a place of being clean instead of where your sin says you should be. And so there's almost this giant turn of joy where you're saying, now that I've confessed this, I've given this to you, God, you, you see me in a different way because of what Jesus has done. Yeah, that, that line about you, you draw me close and make me clean, the order of that is so important because he brings us close first and then he cleans us off. Sometimes we think it's the reverse, like you've gotta be clean and then you're allowed to become close and, and Jesus is the one who does that for us, it's so cool. My favorite part though is the bridge. There's these big declarations about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, tell me why you put that in there. Yeah, so the bridge was something that was collaborative. A couple of worship pastors 
put that together, but we wanted to make a declarative statement of who we are because of what Christ has done for us. So the bridge says, I am known by the Father, I am loved through the Son, I am washed in the Spirit, fully known and fully loved. So no matter what we've done, God knows everything, He loves us all the same. This declarative statement is almost like an anthem to say, this is who I am in Christ. And by the time you're singing that, you've almost forgotten about the things and the feelings that you felt in the first couple verses because there's this triumphant joy that you have to say, this is who I am in Christ. That's what I love about confession is it brings us from a place where on our own, we're stuck in this miserable state. And yet because of what God has done through, and then through this process of owning up, being honest about it, we come to a place where we can say, this is who I really am in Christ. It's incredible freedom, incredible gift to be able to do that. So we confess in prayer, we confess in public, but perhaps the most powerful form of confession is confession in partnership, in partnership. This is when you sit down with another person and you say out loud, this is what I have done. Again, you don't sugarcoat, you don't make excuses, you just say, this is the real me, I want you to see it. Why on earth would you ever do that? Well, for one thing, we're commanded to do that in scripture. So James 5 says this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So we do this out of obedience, but there are some incredible benefits of this. The reason God wants us to do this is because when we say our sin out loud to another person, it keeps us honest, even with ourselves. You think about it, when you commit a sin, there is some part of you that thinks this is a good idea. You know, you want it. You you wouldn't do it if you were completely convinced there wasn't something good about it. And even after the fact, when you're confessing to God privately, you can kind of downplay it. You can sort of rationalize it. You can sort of minimize it. But there is something about saying to another person, this is what I did, that you feel the weight of it. You, You feel the reality of your sin. And this is a necessary part of this process. It's part of the experience of being fully known. Like you, people see what's really going on. But because of that, it's also part of the process of experiencing being fully loved. So when someone confesses their sin to you, it's really important how you respond. You, you don't respond by just adding more pressure like, yeah, that actually really was bad. Man, yeah, you got some things to say sorry about. You'd do better next time, you know, but we'll figure it out. You also don't offer excuses like, ah, that's okay. We all mess up sometimes. I'm sure you're under a lot of pressure. Like, you know, it'll be okay. No, what you do is you say, when someone confesses their sin, your job is to point them to the only hope that they have, which is Jesus, and to assure them that he is gracious and kind and, will conf- and when they confess, will really, really forgive their sin. And this is so important because when you are stuck in shame, it is hard to believe that God really does forgive you, that God really does love you. It is hard for you to believe that, but it's not hard for your brother or sister in Christ to believe that. When you struggle to believe in God's grace, they're still confident of it, so they can say, no, this is actually true. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a theologian from the 20th century in Germany, said this. So the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Maybe you've heard the gospel summarized this way. 
You, you are a lot worse off than you ever dared imagine, but you are far more loved than you ever dared dream. You ever heard that before? This is how confession works. When you confess to someone, you are essentially saying, I'm a lot worse off than I ever dared imagine. I'm a lot worse off. But then the other person says this, yes, and you are far more loved than you ever dared dream. You experience it out loud, tangibly, the experience of being truly known and truly loved. Uh, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest in the 16th century, and he critiqued the, the Catholic Church at the time and eventually uh, split off and, and began the movement that is now known as Protestantism. And along the way, as he's doing this, he threw out a whole lot of things that the, the Catholic Church was doing at the time that they, he thought they had gotten wrong. But there was one thing that he didn't throw out that might surprise you. He didn't throw out the practice of confessing your sins to another person. Now, he changed it a bit. He said, you don't have to only go to a priest. They're not the only people you can do this with. You can go to any Christ follower. And he also said, it's no longer mandatory. It's not a required thing. But he said, I'm not going to get rid of it because I think people will still want to do it. Because he knew that when you confess your sin to another person, you experience a grace coming from their response that is incredibly powerful when you hear it on the lips of another person, when you hear what your heart struggles to believe in your moment of shame. And so because of that, he said, we don't need to require this. Instead, this is what he said. He said, if you are a Christian, you should be glad to run more than 100 miles for confession, not under compulsion, but rather coming and compelling us to offer it. When the Holy Spirit makes you sensitive to your sin, you crave that moment when you can come into the light and experience the freedom that comes from that, of being assured of God's forgiveness and grace in your life, that when someone says to you, you know what? God is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. That is an incredible moment that we crave. Now here's what I want you to ponder as we wrap up. What would happen in your life if you actually did this? Like, what would happen to all of us if we regularly were confessing sin, if this was one of the consistent rhythms of our life? For some of you, this would bring an immediate change. I know there are some of you right now who there is something that is going on in your life that as long as I've been talking, the Holy Spirit has been saying, that's what we're talking about. That right there. It needs to come out. It needs to come into the light. You need to bring it out. You have been hiding a sin for long enough, and you know, I, I need to bring this out. I have been where you are. At different times in my life, I have had secret sin that I kept hidden for way too long because I dreaded what would happen if this comes out. It, it sounded painful. But I want to tell you, it's, it's like having a rotten tooth. Yeah, it hurts to have a tooth pulled, but the experience of keeping that tooth in there constantly uh, pressing on you, nagging you, the persistent pain is far, far worse and far more devastating. And, and as soon as it out, it's out, it brings relief. The, the, the experience can be messy. There can be consequences to deal with. But the season of growth that comes after that is going to be one of the most fruitful in your entire life. You will look back on that and say, I am so thankful that I brought that into the light. So I want to plead with you. If you are in that situation, get that out as soon as you can. Tell somebody. Do, do it today. Text someone before you leave today and say, we need to talk about something. Throw your hat over the fence so you've got to go get it. Please, please do this. For your own sake, come into the light. But it's not just the immediate value of confessing a long-hidden sin. It's also the ongoing value of making this a regular, ordinary practice in your life. It's a rhythm that's good for you. Uh, for one thing, it means that it makes it so that sin never really gets a foothold in your life because you're always uh, confessing it, coming clean too fast. You root it out. 
It, it also makes it so that you are more dependent on Jesus because you know it's only by his grace that you stand. And honestly, it makes you in the sort of person that other people want to be around. And you know people who are just so genuine. Like they're just honest, down-to-earth people. They never feel like they're looking down on you. They're not full of themselves. They're patient when you mess up and they're humble when they mess up. They're open to correction, but they're still confident. They're okay when people are in process. Like These are the kind of people you're like, I just like being around those people. You know how you become like that? Over time, you confess your sin and you are honest about yourself and say, this is the real me and you experience grace and that softens your heart and makes it tender towards others. That's how you become that sort of person. Think of about what it would be like to be in a community full of people like that. Wouldn't you wanna be in that community? Don't you think there are people all around us who would be drawn to a community like that? People who don't yet know Jesus, but they say something about these people is what I've been looking for. They're honest, real, gracious, welcoming. Wouldn't you wanna be in a church like that, like in community with other people? When you mess up, they're there to be with you, walk with you. They don't shame you for being honest about your sin. That's a good thing. How do we make that happen? We do it by making confession a regular rhythm of our life. There are some of you who have never done this in your life. You've never come to the place where you've said, Jesus, I'm done with myself. I can't do it anymore. I've made a mess of my life. I tried to run things on my own and I don't know how to clean up the mess that I've made. I need you to forgive me. I'm sorry. Rescue me save me. And you've never surrendered to him and said, Jesus, I need you to be my savior. This is the day to do it. Call on him. He is gracious and merciful. Come out of the darkness and into the light. If you've never done that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So as we pray, we're just going to pray a prayer of surrender. And if this is the first time you've ever done that, you can go ahead and pray along with me in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to begin this prayer of surrender simply by saying sorry. Simply by being honest about what we've done. God, I have sinned and I am wrong and I am sorry and I need your forgiveness. Take just a moment now, just a moment of silence to confess your sin to God and ask for his forgiveness. Now take a moment and thank God for what he's done. Say, Jesus, you didn't leave me in my sin. Thank you. Thank you. You did for me what I couldn't do for myself. You came and you died the death that I deserve. You paid for my sin on the cross. And then you rose again from the dead so that I could have new life, that I could have hope of a future with you. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me, for giving yourself for me. Thank you. Take just a moment to express your thanks to him. And now now say please to Jesus. Please come and transform my life. Please come and be the king. I can't run my life on my own anymore. I want you to be in charge. I want you to transform me, make me new. Give Give me a hope and a future with you. God, please come and rescue me.
Go ahead and express that to Jesus. God, we praise you. You are the God of light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And when there is darkness in us, that you give us a way to step into the light, that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.